tis that time of year when one returns to Christmas Carol. And if one returns to Charles Dickens's novel, one finds it darker than one remembers. But of course, my friend Lou Byard has done that one better by <laughs> writing an unofficial sequel to A Christmas Carol called Mr. Timothy. And oh, Nelly, is it even <laughs> darker than the source material? Is it fair to call it Mr. Timothy a sequel or is that mislabeling it? Yeah, I think it's, it, you could, I suppose you could call it a sequel. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 16th year, number 785, Grown-Up Tiny Tim. Bayard's novel, Mr. Timothy, is a sort of sequel to Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol and imagines what happens to Tiny Tim as a grown-up. It's a fun and moving literary thriller, a different kind of holiday treat, and given my fondness for sequels and historical fiction, it is totally my jam. So I was thrilled to get a chance to talk to Lou about it, but he wanted to make one thing clear at the outset of our conversation. It's unauthorized, however. I should say no, no Dickens... Uh, relations have authorized this book. I don't even know how many of them are even alive. There must be somebody. There must be some, yeah. Um, but um, it, it's funny, when he first wrote that, his that book was was roundly pirated, uh, both in UK and in uh, the States. So he made very little money uh, from that original book. And he, he got no royalties for dramatizations. So he just made, wrote something unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a problem to have. <laughs> and he also toured with it later in his life, right? Yes. Giving readings election, of it in the UK and the US. Yeah. Yes. He delighted in um, making people cry with the death of Tiny Tim, the, or the projected death of Tiny Tim. So yeah, he was he was really a um, a, an, a wannabe actor, uh, and he did, as you probably know, amateur theatricals. So he he loved that whole performative side of things. Oh, poor man. Failed actor turned uh, uh, <laughs> forever greatest novelist of all yeah. time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting your your spin on uh, on Tiny Tim, who's mm -hmm. grown up in your novel um, and referred to as Mr. Timothy, where mm -hmm. because as as you say, he's not Tiny Tim is less of a character in the book and more of a symbol. Yes. And it seems yes. like you know that. I mean, obviously, you know that as a writer. But it seems like the character, your version of Mister Timothy, also sees himself is kind of struggling with. Uh, I'm a symbol, and I don't want to be a symbol. <laughs> yes. I want to be a person. I'm, yeah, I'm in somebody else's narrative, uh, and I need to find my own narrative, or to quote David Copperfield, to become the hero of my own life. Yeah, I I really wrote. Mr. Timothy, because I wanted to pay homage to Dickens because he was my favorite author growing up and still I think the largest influence on my work. And, but I also, I wanted to make it about Tiny Tim because he was my least favorite Dickens character. <laughs> I could never stand Tiny Tim. Um, I never believed in him um, because as you say, he was set up to be a saint. He had to be a saint for the moral equation of the original story. Uh, but I find him just annoying, <laughs> kind of a creep. So, um, I thought, what can we do to to muss up Tiny Tim? And so it became, we, let's make him an adult. So we take away the sentimentality of being a child. Oh, let's 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 have him live, 
um, take away the crutch, mm-hmm. uh, and then drop him in the middle of this Victorian underworld. So he, when we first meet him, he's living in a brothel. He's teaching the the, the madam how to read, and at night he's trawling the River Thames for with his friend Gully for dead bodies and the, the the money and things that might be in their pockets. So this is not your grandmother's tiny Tim. Um, and th- that was kind of how it started, but it, it wound up being a, a, quite a dark story, but in its own way, a Christmas story, it does take uh, place over the, the days leading into Christmas. And there is a kind of redemption at the end, I like to think, but yeah, I, I remember a friend of mine first reading it and she said, where does all this shit come from? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Better out than in, right? Better out than in. Um, so. yes, pur- yes, purge and exercise your demons <laughs> by exactly. putting it into the a novel of a saint, a grown-up saint. Yes, yes, yes. So, well, and it's, um, it, it, it does. He suffers from the, you quoted David Copperfield, but he also suffers from the enormously great expectations put on <laughs> him, too. Well, yeah. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I think there were, yeah. I mean, the way I the way I work it on the book, there's a series of letters he writes to his dead father. And uh, and it was his father, according to my telling, his father was the one who created the narrative, who who invented things that he'd never said, who told, put out to this world this, this picture of a child who didn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is becoming, as an adult, he has to find a way to, to figure out who, who he is, to use that, I don't know, is that, is that a 70s slang expression? I don't know, but to find it, yeah, to find out who he is apart from Dickens, apart from his father, what, what is he, what is, what is really down there? I love the notion that Bob Cratchit is an unreliable narrator and can't be trusted. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, not because he's nefarious, just because he yeah. has his own very specific lens. Yes, exactly. He, he sees his child as one thing, and I think that's common, honestly, isn't among parents and children. I mean, I think we 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 get each other wrong in ways small and large. Um, I know my parents got me wrong in certain ways, and I know that my kids would probably say the same of me. We try to get it right, but we have certain preconceived notions about who we are, who our kids are or should be. And I think it's hard to break clear of that sometimes. Well, that's true. And I and I remember reading Mr. Timothy, I think when it first came out, before we knew each other. And I rem- and 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 but I reread it recently, like within the last year. And it's I take I take it so much differently now that I'm a parent. Because when I when it first came out, I was barely a parent. They were little kids. <laughs> and now I'm older, wiser. Uh, and I and I and I do see it so much differently. I I love that you take as your epigraph the, a quote from A Christmas Carol, where uh, it, it's about Scrooge saying he had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. Which, which it's funny in the book in Christmas Carol you go, oh good for him, but as the <laughs> epigraph to your novel you go, oh dear, that that sounds ominous and dark. Well, there's um, well, there are plenty of other ghosts uh, in the in the in my book, but uh, it's interesting because I I wanted to have a a scene with Scrooge himself, who goes by the name of Uncle N in this, the context of this book, and um, you can tell that he misses those those manifestations because we're all you know there's nothing like the zeal of a convert. So the the Scrooge who wakes up on that. Christmas morning is as converted as, as he's ever going to be. You know, he has been wrenched um, soul and body, and he is he is 
pro Christmas, you know. But with as with any conversion, you know, the zeal will die away over time, and and he misses those those old ghosts in a, in a way. But yeah, and 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 yet, uh, uh, with this is another burden for Tim Timothy, who. Mm -hmm doesn't want to be the whatever recipient yeah. engine of Scrooge's redemption anymore. Right. So right. Scrooge supports him, but it's, but Timothy receives it grudgingly and wishes he didn't have to have it. Yes. Yes. And, and it turns out that the Scrooge's philanthropy can, can't stop everybody, can't protect everybody. I mean, one of his, I forget, one of his sisters kind of sinks from view. Um, and and the Cratchit parents die up and die because money can't save them from that from disease from 19th century pestilence. So there's only so much that that Scrooge can do, and I, I would think that'd be a a grievance, um, a, um, a sadness for him because you know he he at the end of Christmas Carol he is he is ready to make it all right again. Right, fix everything. Exactly, yeah. throw yeah. money at the problem as they like to say now. But, yeah, that's right. And there are limits to the efficacy of what money can do. Yes, yeah. as, as 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 they all find in this book. Certainly in 19th century London, which was you know full of disease and and um, suffering. So, yeah, and you don't hold you don't hold back on that. Nor did Dickens. Nor did Dickens. Yeah. yeah, he was he was furiously uh, um, concerned with poverty. I mean, if you read if you read it, I know you have. Go back to the original. It's an, it's poverty is is such a concern for him. Um, he's 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 angry. It's an angry book, you know. It's just, yeah. this. What kind of world is this where, you know, so many children in particular are, are are languishing in poverty? So that's really what animated the book, I think, as much as anything. It's just his passionate social critique. This is Ken Campbell, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company on the air. Where can you RSC the RSC? We're still the remote Shakespeare Company, but variance and equity protocols permitting our first performances back will be in Michigan next year meaning next month in January 2022. You can find all of our upcoming performance dates at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. It's a great mailing list to be on because we never send you anything. Go to reducedshakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Lewis Byard, the author of Mr. Timothy, an unauthorized and sort of sequel to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Well, and that's interesting, too, it, 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 that the idea that, that Tiny Tim is a, 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 a symbol rather than a character, but in that, he is he's a Rorschach test. Like, there could be Anybody, everybody could write their own sequel to Christmas Carol or their own their own further adventures of Tiny Tim, mm -hmm. and they would all be different, right? Right, because we right. see in Tiny Tim what we what we see. see. Yes, yeah. yes, and I see in him that kid that your mother always wanted you to be more like. 
you know, that that per kind of perfect kid, either in your own family or in someone else's family. Why can't you be more like fill in the blank? That's me as Tiny Tim. Right. So that's why I, I had to kind of knock him off his pedestal. And and by the end of the book, I really do find myself liking him. I, I, I admire him. I think he's he's strong and he's brave and resilient and all those things. But he had to discover those properties in him by being put through his pa the paces of a thriller plot, basically. Well, that's it. And that was interesting, too, that that. I think I think some critic called it a literary thriller, um, uh, but it it feels almost like it's like a nineteenth century detective novel that was being sort of discovered in that era already. And I know you the book you wrote after this was the Pale Blue Eye, right? That had yeah, Edgar right. Allan Poe. Yeah, yeah. So yes, uh, and Dickens Dickens love mysteries. Um, he wrote one of the first great detective heroes, Inspector Bucket, I want to say, in Bleak House. Um, and right. he was friends with he was friends with Wilkie Collins, who also wrote mysteries. So he definitely, and of course, what was his final book, the the mystery of Edwin Drood, unfinished. But he loved that. He loved that form. He loved that genre. And he loved because he was um, writing on installments. Um, he 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 loved using thriller devices, suspense to keep people coming back for the next the next installment. They came out every month, and he had to keep people. Reading, so, you know, on keeping them on the edge of their seats. So there are lots of cliffhangers, and he he definitely uses lots of genre elements without apology. So this this literary detective genre, this love of genre, is that a thing you are still interested in writing? Detective <laughs> stories, thrillers. Well, that's interesting. You say that. Um, so did we talk about Pale Blue Eyes becoming a movie? So I've been um, it was Netflix movie starring Christian Bale and. And it's uh, they're filming it right now. Um, so the the director and writer director was very kind enough to share successive drafts of the screenplay with me and share solicit my input, which he didn't have to do, which is apparently very uncommon for directors to do. Yeah. So so it was interesting because I was looking back at the original story, which I hadn't read in fifteen years, and I was just amazed how much work it was. I mean, there's a there's a poem that turns out to be an acrostic, and there's there's two different narrators, one of them, one of whom is Edgar Allan Poe. Um, there's all this stuff that went into making of it, and it just seems like so much labor to me now, even though I continue to enjoy thrillers and mysteries on my own as a reader. So I've been gravitating with the, the most recent book and the book that's coming out next June called Jackie and Me toward historical um, courtship novels uh, of, of sorts. So, which is a very different, more is it, basically from from Dickens to Jane Austen is 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 has been my progression. And I I really enjoy just finding the story that's already there, just hasn't been necessarily highlighted or or scrutinized in a particular way. And that's been it's been a great fun it's been great fun for me. And I I feel like writers need to evolve at some level. Um, uh, that's why I probably I've never written a series. I just think I would get super bored writing the same, going back to the same template again and again. Interesting. But that's me. That's well, me. and as you describe the, the 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 difficulties of adapting your novel, The Pale Blue Eye, into a screenplay, all those things that you mentioned are specifically literary. Yes. Yes, exactly. So I was like, we can't now we can't do it can't be an acrostic anymore. That's not gonna work. Right. The poem itself, I think, was one of the hardest things to adapt because. There's nothing deadlier, I think, in a movie than someone stopping to recite something. <laughs> it's just like, ah, uh, um, unless it's done really well, unless it, unless it feels like it's essential to the plot. But if it's just somebody, oh, here's this poem that will give the book its title, and it's written in the manner of um, Eula Loom, I think, was the original template for that. You so, just uh, made that up. 
<laughs> there is a poem, Eula Loom, yes. I think that's how he says it. Um, at any rate, so um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was fascinating. Actually, it was, it was really fascinating, very stimulating to figure out how to adapt my own story to another medium because it being a, just a feature length movie, a lot of it has to go. So you have to figure out, okay, what has to stay? Right. And what has to be changed? And I was frankly the first one saying, I don't think you need this character. I think this character doesn't really have much plot function currently here. You know, so I was I was actually fairly ruthless about it, but it inspired me to maybe think about one day writing a screenplay of my own. And in addition to all our other pastimes, Austin, because um, <laughs> you know, I've worked I worked on a play too over the quarantine. And yeah, but the idea of a screenplay now is kind of interesting to me because it, it really is um a different a different medium, but it's also one that feels congenial. That's really exciting. So the yeah. next time we have you onto the podcast, you'll be talking <laughs> about your new your new historical romance novel. And then maybe after that, you can tell us about your screenplay. Yes. Yes. Maybe there'll be something to share there. Yes. Um, cool. Austin, Austin, you, Austin, you know, as well as I went out, I always have multiple plates spinning and the same with you. Same with yeah. you. I think that's, that's just a way of keeping hope alive, right? Because, you know, even if one crashes, there's a couple more still still spinning somewhere. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Send us your unusual holiday tradition via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw a comment to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or on our own actual website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or visit my website, TheShakespeareans.com. Thanks, as always, to Tiny Matt Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band, and this week by our friend Eric Essex, whose jazz guitar holiday tunes you've been listening to. Find his albums wherever you get your music, or visit his website at ericessex.com. That's Eric with a C, E-S-S-I-X dot net. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Kristen Goodwin. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Ken Campbell, who played Santa in that holiday classic Home Alone. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 785 2355ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. those other plates um, spinning means that when one stops spinning, you've still got another one to go run to and keep spinning. And once you get that going, you can return to the original plate that, and make that spin some more. I like it. Oh, I see. So, so it doesn't necessarily crash. It Correct. Just, it, just, it just stops spinning. Oh, this is a much more generous construction. So it's it just stops spinning. You can set it down and then go make it, make another plate spin. I like it. Yeah. I like it. No, no. So no. No crockery smashed on the floor. It's it's it's, it's oh, nice. I didn't say that. <laughs> God bless you, Lou. God blesses everyone. God bless you as well. is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.